Well, our theme, as I said, is the holiness of God. The preacher never feels adequate to convey anything from God's Word in a way that, is, that it deserves. But the holiness of God is one of those attributes and one of those truths revealed in Scripture that probably surpasses them all in, in that regard. I was thinking that I wish that there was a way that I could speak with some sort of a, a gravity or a, a trembling voice or a furrowed brow or some, some sort of demeanor that would convey, somehow impress upon us uh, the holiness of God as we discuss this and as we look at the Scriptures. But there's no way that that can happen. Uh, there's no way that we can know, really know and understand any, anything about God to any extent without Him doing the work of revealing it to our hearts. And so we will... We'll walk through this chapter just like we've done the rest of them and we'll read and we'll look at the scriptures and, and at the end of our time, if we have learned anything further of the holiness of God, it will be because He has helped us. And if we, if we feel like, well, there we have some information, well, that's, that's profitable, but we have to take the information and, and trust that the, the Spirit will make a deeper and more thorough application of it. So I'll begin with the introduction that he gives and we'll work through this chapter. He begins by describing or, or defining the word holy. Again, all of this is a description of God. The word holy comes from the Hebrew word kadosh, which means separated, marked off, placed apart, or withdrawn from common use. We've said before it comes from a root word which means to cut. The imagery would be that something has been cut away from a mass and now that thing that was cut away stands apart and is, is different, is separate. It's in distinction. Of course, when we speak of God being holy, we're not saying that He was cut off from any... Uh, Mass. It's not as though he's a separate part of something else. He is in himself completely and absolutely holy. Then he gives us these two categories. With regard to God, the word has two important meanings. The first is that God is transcendent above his creation. When we speak of the holiness of God, we're saying he is transcendent above his creation. And then secondly, that God is transcendent above His creation's corruption. And you can hear just in, in those two ways of articulating it that there's sort of a, a, a trajectory. The second one follows the first. Very often when we use the word holy, we have in mind that second application of it or implication drawn from the first, and I, I try to make a distinction by saying, using the phrase moral holiness, the holiness of God with regard to a, a moral standard, which is really 
tantamount to His righteousness, His, his purity. In that second way, or the way that we often use it, we're dealing with God's nature as He relates to creation. He's transcendent above creation's corruption. That's not wrong. That's true. I just want to point out that that is very often the way we use the term. But we have to also keep in mind that that is an application drawn from the first meaning that He gave, God being transcendent above His creation. Or, or rather, God being transcendent, we could say, period, without relation to creation. To say that God is holy is first and foremost a statement about His intrinsic nature as God. Leave creation out of the picture. This is who He is. He is the only one like Him. There is no other. If we go back to the picture of something being cut off from a mass, well, here you've got this, this thing that is it, it's completely by itself, and that's the way we ought to think about God. He is he's holy in that sense. But then secondarily, we then draw that relationship of God to the creature, the creation, because of who God is as being transcendent, period. Well, then He's transcendent above creation, and then the implication is He's transcendent also... Uh, morally, he is above corruption. Corruption being a trait of creation after the fall. To put it another way, we could say holiness is of God first. He is holy. And then it he, it, the word bears a relation to creation secondarily. I'll keep reading. He, he defines the word transcendence. We use this word often. The word transcendence comes from the Latin verb transcendere, taken from two parts, trans meaning over, and then scandere is the way I'm going to pronounce that. My Latin dictionary does not have pronunciation, so I don't know if it's supposed to be a hard C or a soft C. I'm just guessing. We say transcendent, which means to go beyond, to rise above, or exceed. As Creator, God is above His creation and totally distinct from every created being. But we're not, when we say God is above creation, we're not describing God like an airplane, that He's just, He's, he's way up there somewhere. We, we could use the word above, or we could use the word outside of or beyond. He, he's, he's not a part of the creation. The universe contains the creation. God is outside of that, beyond that, separate from, distinct from, all of that. This distinction between God and the rest of His creation is not merely quantitative. It's not that God is the same as creatures, but better, but qualitative regarding the quality. God is a completely different being, regardless of their splendor, all other beings on earth and in heaven are mere creatures. God alone is God, separate, transcendent, and unapproachable. This is essentially what we mean when we say God is holy. It's parallel with saying God is transcendent. He is beyond, above, outside of, other than, separate from, different 
That's what holy means. I continue. Holiness is the preeminent attribute of God and the greatest truth that we can ever learn about Him. Every other divine attribute that we have studied and will study is simply an expression of His holiness in that it demonstrates that He is distinct from His creation and absolutely separate, a completely different being. And we've seen this as we walk through the attributes and we see that many of them are given to us in the form of a, a negative, a negation. He gives us some examples of this idea that all of God's attributes derive from or, 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 or we could say are merely various colors of His holiness. The triune nature of God is an expression of His holiness. Is there any created being so incomprehensible, mysterious, and wonderful? God is Trinity. Can you think of anything else that's Trinity? You can't. There, there's nothing like God. Therefore, He's holy in His nature as Trinity. The, the great mystery of the Trinity to us is that it's describing or, or put fo- putting forward to us something that is completely beyond our experience. As we've said, all analogies fail. Illustrations fail. The, the, the Trinity is not like anything. There's no illustration of it because God is holy. You can't illustrate holiness. There's no simile. There's no metaphor. There's no comparison. He's holy compared to nothing, like nothing. He goes on to say that God is spirit. Is to express another aspect of His holiness. Is there any created being so free and unhindered? God's perfection, eternal nature, self-existence, immutability, omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscience are all expressions of His holiness. Is there any created being so great and worthy of reverence? You think about it. He's perfect and complete. Is anything else perfect in that way? Is there anything that we can imagine in the creation that is complete and perfect like God? No, there's nothing. So His perfection is a manifestation of His holiness. There's nothing eternal besides God. We don't say, well, eternity or eternality is sort of like... No, there's nothing else. There's no comparison. Nothing and no one is self-existent besides God. No comparison. He's different than everything else. No creature is immutable. As we said, immutability is really just the measure of creature. God is immutable. Therefore, He's holy. All of those omnis, omnipresence, omnipotence, omniscience, what we're saying is God's not like anything that we can imagine. He's totally other than. We would say, well, well, I know some things, okay? Well, there's a, a whole other category over here that's omniscience. All knowledge, perfect knowledge, source and fountain of knowledge. There's nothing like that except God. He is in His own category. He says, as we continue our study of the attributes of God and as we walk before Him, we must keep in mind this one great truth. God is holy. And all that He is and does is an expression of His holiness. So that's that first category. His transcendence outside of, above, beyond creation. And then secondly, the holiness of God means that He transcends the moral corruption of His creation. 
and is separated from all that is profane and sinful. God is not like us on our best day. Go back to the Garden of Eden. There's no sin. There's no corruption. God's not like that. God is he's completely other than. But then now creation has fallen. Creation is subject to decay. And God is still holy. In that regard, God cannot sin. God cannot take pleasure in sin. God cannot have fellowship with sin. It is impossible to overemphasize the importance of God's holiness. What we understand about this attribute will influence every aspect of our relationship with God. As the Scriptures declare in Proverbs 9.10, the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. What we understand about this attribute will influence every aspect of our relationship with God. Every, every failure in life, every failure in our relationship with God, every shortcoming, every sin, every bit of it is because to some extent we've, we've committed that ancient sin. You thought that I was one like yourself. We, have, we, we think that maybe in some sense God is like us. He's not. He's not like us. He's holy. And knowing that, coming to a comprehension of that, is understanding. That's how you move forward. That's how you grow. It is important to understand that God's holiness is intrinsic or inherent. That is inward, essential, or belonging to His nature. Holiness is not merely something that God decides to be or do. It is essential to who He is. He is holy. God would have to cease to be God in order to be unholy. He would have to deny His own nature to do something that is unholy. This is a wonderful truth that inspires great confidence in God. So all of that sets the stage for where we're going to go. And we begin, as we have many times, with the name of God. And these were in the chapter there. They're filling the blanks. So you've got some of the phrasing of the text there. We won't turn to these first three but I'll read them and then I'll read the note. The first one is from Exodus three thirteen and 14. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now you might read that. Any of us, young people, you might read that and you say, I didn't see the word holy anywhere in that description. Where do we get holiness from that? Well, we, we've seen this before. The fact that he needs to go no further in his description is, is setting forth the fact that he's not like us. He's not like any created thing. He doesn't need to go further. And notice the, the note says that God is holy, separate and distinct from all other beings and things. There is no adequate illustration or example to communicate who He truly is. If we ask another man to describe himself to us, he can point to other human beings and say, I am like him or I am like her. Or we, we often de describe ourselves in distinction from other beings. I am Paul, which means I am not Ryan. I'm Paul, which means I am not Philip. I'm, I'm distinguishing. God doesn't need to do that. God's holy. He just says, I am. And all of a sudden, he's placed in a category of his own. 
In contrast, God is incomparable. Not even the greatest archangel in heaven is an adequate example of who He is. When Moses asked God, Who are you? God could only point to Himself and declare, I am who I am. This truth helps us to understand the great importance of the revelation of God in Christ. Jesus is God in the flesh, and the only true image or example of who God is, John 14, 9, Colossians 1, 15, God now answers every question about Himself by pointing to His Son and declaring, I am like Him. God has revealed Himself in Christ. And of course, when I read that, I, I can't help but think of Jeff Thomas preaching about Christ and using the illustration of the photocopy. And he says, he's, Christ is not like God at all. He is God. But you know, you get the point. Christ is the revelation of who God is. Another one, Psalm 111.9. He has sent redemption to His people. He has ordained His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. The word awesome we see means to fear. In this context, it denotes that God inspires all and reverence, a proper understanding of the holiness of God will always result in a profound reverence before God. And, and even historically there have, men, there have been men who have gone to extremes to show their reverence for God, refusing even to write out His name. And we might think to ourselves, well, that, he, that just seems to be going a little far. To me, I... I I know that I'm never going to go far enough in reverencing God in my life. If that, if that was a, a, a compulsion that I had, I wouldn't feel like, or, or you had, I wouldn't feel like you had gone too far. They reverence His name and it should strike reverence and fear in us when we think of God. The third text, Isaiah 57, 15, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. And then the question is asked. We, we see these words, holy, awesome, exalted. What do these things communicate about the holiness of God? He's named holy. God is holy. God is awesome. God is exalted. Holiness is a statement, again, of God's transcendent nature. He is utterly unlike any created thing. Holy. Awesome, he said, refers to what that transcendent nature of God should do to us. It should strike fear and awe and reverence in us. He is full of that which ought to strike reverence in our hearts. And then God is the exalted one, which reminds us of our place before Him. Exalted or exaltation implies an upward gaze and a bended knee. God goes up and we look up to Him and as we behold Him, it ought to bring us low. As John the Baptist said, He must increase, I must decrease. The more that we learn of God and the more that we strive to have the Spirit of God exalt the nature of God in our hearts and minds, the lower we will be. It only works that way. If He goes up, we go down. If we are going up in our estimation, it might, there might be 
many different reasons why, but ultimately it comes back to this. I'm going up in my esteem of myself because I'm esteeming God lower and lower. If I continue to exalt Him, I will come low. Therefore, we must conclude that the holiness of God, from these words, holiness, awesome, exalted, the holiness of God is not something that we may simply agree with or affirm. We must do that. We must agree with it. We must affirm it. But if we really begin to be convinced and convicted and begin to understand what this means, it will not simply issue forth in a fact of the mind. This is something, and all of God's attributes are this way, but especially His holiness, this is something that alters us. It changes us when this is really conceived in our minds. It changes the way we think about God. It changes the way we think about ourselves. It changes the way that we think about how we relate to God and how God relates to us. It changes the way we think about the world. It alters our being, our souls. If it doesn't, then we've not got there yet. We have to keep going. I wish I could get us there. I wish I could talk enough to get us there. I wish I could grab everybody the arm and say, let's, let's go deep into the holiness of God. I can't. All I can do is tell you what it says. So His name, holy, awesome, exalted. Secondly, in the Scriptures we find that the holiness of God is both preeminent and transcendent. It is preeminent in that no other divine attribute is so often declared and explained in the Scriptures. It is transcendent in that there is simply no comparison between the holiness of God and that of any other thing. In other words, he's saying there's no comparison between the holiness of God and the holiness of any other thing. We know in Scripture there are things that are not God that are given that descriptor of holy or sanctified. What we need to understand is even in that, God's holiness is not like that holiness. God's holiness is holy. It's not like the holiness of any other thing. Only God is holy in and of Himself, and any other thing that might receive that descriptor only gets that when God places that moniker on it and ascribes that attribute to it from Himself. Anything else that's called holy is only holy inasmuch as God conveys that status to it. That is one of my chief struggles with holy days. We don't make things holy. God makes things holy. And you could go on down the list. Things that we call holy. Only God makes things holy. God's holiness is preeminent. And there He gives the explanation of that word before and to project or to project before he says, it is impossible to understand the character of God apart from His holiness. Above all things, God is holy. And then we have these two texts, and we'll turn to them. Isaiah 6.3 is the first one, probably the most well-known in our minds with regard to the holiness of God. What he's saying is the holiness of God is one of those attributes that is 
preeminent or thrust before at the very head of all the others. Isaiah 6, 3. Let me read verses 1 through 5. In the year that King, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That is what happens when a human being has a conception of the holiness of God. I'm ruined. I'm undone. I'm unraveled. I'm falling apart. I will be destroyed. Now turn to Revelation 4, 8. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So we have in both of these passages, these, both of these little glimpses into the throne room of God, into heaven, this threefold repetition of the holiness of God. In both of these passages, we see that the holiness of God is the theme of heavenly praise. He's not merely holy, He's thrice holy. And even these heavenly beings that are far more glorious than we can imagine, beyond our wildest dreams, if we saw one of these beings, we would be unraveled. As they spoke, the foundation of the threshold shook at their voice, and yet they cover their faces in the presence of God. And all they say is, holy, holy, holy. He says in Hebrew literature, repetition is used to give emphasis to what is being said. That God's holiness is declared three times, called the trihagion, from thrice holy, trice hagios. This denotes that God is absolutely and infinitely holy. No other divine attribute is proclaimed with greater emphasis. We never read in the Scriptures that God is love, 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 or merciful, merciful, merciful. But we do read that He is holy, holy, holy. Holiness is the foundation of all that God is and does. If there is one attribute of God that we simply cannot overemphasize, it is His holiness. That's why I say you can't, you're not going to go too far here. And then God's holiness is transcendent. Again, infinitely surpassing 
all others. There's none holy like the Lord. And now we have several texts. The first is Exodus 15, 11. And we'll, we'll turn to these. Exodus 15, 11. Who is among... Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? So here we see God's holiness is a majestic holiness. Not only is He separate, but the distinction between God and everything else is one of majesty, Great dignity. It draws out reverence and honor from creatures. We, there are things that we might look at and, and maybe because of their, their dishonor or their grotesqueness, we might say, I've never seen anything like that. Well, the holiness of God is not like that. The holiness of God is something that there is nothing else we've ever seen like it and yet it strikes adoration. It's majestic. It's glorious. He's majestic in holiness. 1 Samuel 2.2 2. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is none or no one besides you nor is there any rock like our God. None or no one holy like the Lord. There are distinctions between creatures. I, I, could, I would look and I would say a snake is nothing like a, a butterfly. And a butterfly is nothing like a dog. And I can look at each of, each of us, we can look at each other and say, well, you are not me and I am not you. We are distinct and yet when we consider the holiness of God, again, he, it, the, the distinction is not like any of that. He's in a category all His own. We can list out all of the differences between us and other creatures, but at the end of the day, at the bottom of the line, we still have to say the one thing that we have in common. We are creatures. Every created thing has that in common. God doesn't have that. He's uncreated. There's no one like Him. There is no other. There would be no concept of holy if not for God. Job 15, 15. Behold, He puts no trust in His holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in His sight. Here we see not only the inanimate heavens do not compare with God's holiness. If, if holy ones would be a reference to the angels of God, He doesn't even consider them as, as a, a comparable holiness or bearing a, a comparable holiness Read the note, it says, This does not mean that there is sin or corruption in heaven, but communicates two great truths. Number one, nothing, not even the heavens themselves or those dwell there is holy like God. 
And two, God's holiness alone is intrinsic or inherent. Again, inward, essential, belonging to His nature. Holiness is not merely something that God decides to be or do. It is essential to who He is. He is holy. In contrast to all other beings and things, even heaven and its holy angels derive their holiness from God. They are not holy in themselves, but their holiness flows from God as a gift of grace to them. If God turned away from them and withdrew His grace, they would fall from their holy state into sin and corruption. So it's important. The first sentence that he, that he gives is perhaps the most important. This does not mean that there is sin or corruption in the heavens, but that doesn't change the point that's being made. The heavens themselves have not committed sins, and yet God is not like them. Even they are not pure in His sight. The next text is Isaiah 40, verse 25. Isaiah 40, 25. To whom then will you liken me? that I would be His equal, says the Holy One. What's the point? God alone is holy. There is only one that deserves this title in this way, and that is God alone. He is not a Holy One. He's the Holy One. The only one in His class. Therefore, there's no comparison. To whom then will you liken me? No one, none. He's holy. Now the, the third point brings us back to that concept of the moral holiness or, or the, the moral purity of God. And there are seven texts here, but I'll read the note. The holiness of God means not only that He is unique among all creation, but also that He is separated from all that is sinful. God cannot sin, cannot take pleasure in sin, cannot have fellowship with sin. We don't believe that. I wish I believed it. But sometimes I think that I can sin and God has sort of gotten used to that by now and that He can still have a fellowship with it. He can't. No pleasure, no fellowship. There is no possibility that God could be tempted or that His nature could be defiled. He always remains as He is, holy and incorruptible. And then we have seven texts. The first is Psalm 5.4. And if you've got the, the notebook in front of you, you can be looking ahead so we can turn quickly to these. I always feel bad when I start reading and I still hear pages turning, but we need to get... Get through them. Psalm 5 4. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. We learn here that God and evil have no partnership whatsoever, none. The note says the word dwells is translated from the Hebrew word ger, which literally means to sojourn. God has nothing to do with evil or wickedness. He has no fellowship with that which is morally unclean. Job 
Job 34, 10. Elihu speaking, Therefore listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to do wrong. Again, God can do no wrong. God and wickedness do not mix. They don't go together. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is His ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. So because since God is holy, therefore He can have no dealings with sin, Therefore, our sin drives a wedge between He and us. Not legally. It doesn't change our status before Him as as justified through faith in Christ. But we don't take that truth and go to the, the extreme that says, well, I can sin, I can live how I want, I can have a guilty conscience seven days a week, and everything's going to be fine between me and the Lord. We can't live that way. It doesn't work. Broken communion with God is almost always connected with our sin. And again, usually we know it's our conscience that pricks us. Our conscience is not clear before Him, but we still think He might be a little like me. And my conscience might not be clear in myself, but I can come to you and you don't know that. And me and you can get along just fine. God's not that way. But it's also important, I think, to point out in this verse that it says God's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. The fact that sinners are not saved is not to be attributed to some weakness in God. It's not because He cannot save them. The problem is man's sin. He can have no dealings with sin. Sin and separation from God, even though that that is necessitated uh, by His nature, by His nature, He can have no dealing with sin. We cannot then say the sinner is not saved and that's God's fault. God wouldn't save him. No, it's our sin that drives a wedge. He can save, but it's not God's fault. It's our sin. He says here that intolerance of God towards sin is revealed because God is holy and righteous. Outstanding sin will always lead to separation between God and the sinner. It is for this reason that God sent His only Son to pay our sin debt that He might have unbroken fellowship with us through faith. Oftentimes, we might not be aware of what the sin problem is. But very often we will languish for potentially days or weeks or months in what we can feel is broken communion. And we've not dealt with this reality. Okay, What I need to do first is begin to analyze my life piece by piece. Walk through it. What am I doing? What what does my schedule look like? Where is my time spent? Where is my money spent? Where does my mind go? Begin to section off your life to figure out where have I departed from God. 
He's not departed. He's, he's right where He was in His holiness. We depart. And very often, we will we languish. And, and I'll say this as well. Lack of assurance is often tethered to this same truth. A child of God cannot live and, and foster and incubate in themselves a guilty conscience over some sin and also have full assurance of faith. It doesn't work that way. You're struggling with assurance. Where are you not living like a child of God? Sin is the problem. God's holy. God can have no dealings with sin. God's not the problem. Sin is the problem. He will not tolerate sin. He loves us too much to just keep on going about hunky-dory like everything's fine when we are harboring sin. He loves us too much to do that. And He's too holy to do that. And a, and a true believer feels that. We feel that, that break. Habakkuk 1.13 Habakkuk 1.13, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? You are, your eyes are too, too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Habakkuk asserts the truth that he knows about God, and then he brings in a question based on his perception. I know this is who you are, then why does it seem like this is happening? We see here that God is too pure even to look upon evil with anything other than righteous indignation. Those words with favor are added to sort of interpret the, the meaning here. We, we don't take this to mean, well, God can't... Literally, he can't see evil. He doesn't know when we sin. No, we know that's not true. He sees it all. The reality is he cannot look upon it with anything other than immediate indignation because he's holy. He's holy. James 1.13 James 1.13 let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. So God cannot be tempted with evil. Again, there's nothing that sin can meet with or evil can meet with in God except hatred. And, and the point that he makes in the note is, is important. To say that God cannot be tempted does not mean merely that God has the moral fortitude to resist all temptation to evil. Rather, it means that when evil presents itself to God, there's nothing to resist. He doesn't have to fight it off with any strength. It's met with immediate fury and hatred. And then verse 17, every good thing... Given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. We're reminded here of God's immutability. God's holiness never changes, not for a season. That's what we say oftentimes, I'm, I'm in a season. Well, God doesn't have seasons. 
He doesn't change. His holiness doesn't change. Not for a season, not for a year, not for a month, not for a second, not for a blink of an eye does God cease to be as infinitely holy as He has eternally been. Not with your sin, not with your parents' sin, not with your kids' sin, not with anybody's sin. No one. He doesn't change. No matter how long one observes God's person, word, or works, even under the strictest standard of holiness and righteousness, not even the minutest flaw will ever be found. He dwells in unapproachable light in which there is not even the slightest tint or shadow of evil. God is so pure, so holy. We, will, we have to be glorified before we dwell in His presence. If we were met with His presence here, like the men in Scripture, think of Moses, think of Daniel, think of Ezekiel and others in the presence of God. If we were to meet with just a glimpse of His presence, Isaiah, we're undone. We're un- we, we, would, we would try to get away. We could not endure it. Imagine a purity and a cleanness so pure that we want to get away from it because it it exposes our own sinfulness in His presence. And then I'll just read this one, 1 John 1, 5. This is the message that we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. There's nothing in God but pure, holy light. No darkness, no evil, no sin, no bad side that we can't see. He is all light, all purity. Heading number four. The holiness of God means not only that He is unique among His creation and that He is separated from all that contradicts His nature, that is sin, but also that He cannot take pleasure in sin. God is not neutral or apathetic about evil. It is an abomination, a loathsome thing that evokes hatred or disgust to Him. He hates all that is evil with a holy passion. And then we have three texts. I'll just read these. Deuteronomy 25, 16. Everyone who does these things, everyone who acts unjustly, is an abomination to the Lord. We see here that God does not only oppose sin in the abstract or even specific sins, But God stands against individuals who commit sins. Everyone who does these things, everyone who acts unjustly is an abomination. The who's are the abomination. And immutably so. In other words, that which was an abomination then is an abomination now. There are things that we have in our everyday lives that we think they are light things. We have grown accustomed to them. They're a part of our culture. They're a part of our world. We don't live in the ancient Near East, this and that. When you go back to Scripture, you find out God hates them. They are an abomination. Very often we celebrate them and enjoy them. We need to pay attention to what Scripture says about what is an abomination to God. Psalm 5, 4 and 5, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You, that is God, hates 
all who do, that would be persons committing the act of iniquity. And again, this opposition is not stationary, it's not idle. God's vengeance is not like a punching bag vengeance where He's, he's just angry and He takes it out on something that inanimate or something that's not real. His, God's, God's controversy is with human beings, individuals who sin. That's what the text is saying. Proverbs 15, 8 and 9. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves one who pursues righteousness. And here we're reminded that even the things that wicked men do in some sort of an attempted service or pretended worship to God is despicable in God's sight. If you're not a Christian here, you're not a Christian, okay? You sing. And you listen, and you try to learn, but you're not a Christian? That's an abomination. God hates that. And yet, if you don't do it, it's even worse. It's even worse. Now, you, hopefully you're saying, then what do I have to do? The only answer is to flee to Christ, fly to Him, fly to Him. Unconverted worshipers should tremble in fear at the the thought of entering into the assembly of the people of God. It's a fearful thing. But yet, again, it would be worse if you said, well, I'll just not go. No, that's even worse. So then, let me give you very quickly some, some conclusions to this. First, God is holy when you sin. God is immutably holy, so when you sin, God is still holy. In His observance of your sins, God is holy. God sees your sins when no one else sees them. He doesn't see like man sees. He sees when no one else sees. God sees evil in your sins that even you don't see. Other men might be able to point and say, well, that's sinful. No, God sees the roots, the the, the evil of the evil in your sins. He doesn't observe it like man observes. He's holy. In his observance when you sin, he's holy in his perception of your sins. If you sin, other men might say, yeah, that's bad, that's, that's detrimental, that's harmful. But we still perceive our sin and the sin of others with a little bit of sympathy because that's our nature. We're, it's common to us. God does not have sympathy with your sins. He does not perceive it that way. As I've said before, we grow accustomed to it. We grow callous to sin. God has no calluses. He is is as infinitely sensitive and tender to every sin as if it were the first sin. Shocking to His holy character every single time. He doesn't perceive it the way we perceive it. He's never accustomed to it. Imagine the man Jesus walking the earth, holy, blameless, undefiled, pierced to the heart with every bit of evil in His presence, and yet He bore it and walked as a man. God is holy in His response when you sin. We cut ourselves some slack. There are times when we often won't even acknowledge or react to a sin until hours or days or maybe years after the fact when it's brought to our minds. God's holy. He's not like us. 
God's all-knowing, all-seeing, holy eye meets with sin in the moment and sin draws out the infinite fury of God instantaneously. God is holy when you sin. Secondly, God is holy when you confess your sins. God is holy when you confess your sins. God's not like men when we confess our sins to Him. Men will offer kind words. Men might offer hard words of rebuke and reproof. We can't comfort a soul. A man cannot effectually comfort the soul of another person. Very often a brother or a sister might admit a sin or confess a sin to us and the way that we hear it, 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 it stays in our mind and we treat that person according to that sin for the duration of our lifetime with them. Right or wrong, that's what we do. But God is holy. He's not like us. When we confess our sins to God and seek pardon through Jesus Christ, God's holiness shines through. And He is immediately faithful and just to forgive that sin if we come through Christ. He's not like men. We often think that confessing our sins to God is just like confessing it to a person. Or that they, might, they might think I'm weird. They might perceive me wrong. They might say this or that. No, God's not like that. There's forgiveness through Christ when we come to Him. Thirdly, God is holy when you are in need. He's holy in His power. We go to other people with needs. Well, maybe they can help, maybe they can't. God's power meets no obstacle. You can't bring Him a need that He can't meet. Why? Because He's holy in His power. He's holy in His faithfulness. He meets us with unwavering commitment every time without fail. He's unlike anybody else that we might ever go to to seek for help. You might want to go to this place or that place, but they might be closed or this person might be in the bed. Not God. He's holy. He's not like people when we have needs. God's holy in all of His goals when we are in need. Other people might help us for good reasons or bad reasons or selfish reasons, but God in His holiness meets all of our needs in the best way possible for His own glory and for our greatest good. He's unlike any other. When we are in need, He's holy. Number four, God is holy in rendering to each man according to His deeds. God's holy in His judgments. Human courts can only render temporal judgments. At the very worst, even capital punishment, they can only destroy the body. God's not like men. God's holy. God can destroy both body and soul in hell forever. At the same time, God is holy in His rewards. There's no rewards like the rewards that God gives. God's rewards are eternal, imperishable, undefiled, and they never fade away because God's ultimate reward to His people is the giving of Himself. He doesn't reward like man rewards. He's holy in in rendering to each man according to His deeds. The reason I brought, bring those out, and we could go down a list as long as, as long as the day. We need to understand God is not like us. He's holy. For the unbeliever, that's terrifying. Even for the believer in sin, that should be horrifying. But when we are in need, when we need to take our sins to Him, when we need help and comfort and strength, He's still holy. He's not like any, anywhere else we would go. He transcends all creation. We need to understand the holiness is, it works both ways. Oftentimes we only think of the holiness of God as, as the, 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 
that which strikes fear in us. And I wish, I wish there was more of that. I wish I trembled more. I don't tremble enough. But I also understand that there is a part of God's holiness that is an, an infinite comfort to the people of God. We have to understand that as well. So let's pray and then we'll be dismissed.